The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me to Genesis 2, uh, and we're going to be in verse 1. We are continuing this week in our series through the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. Uh, The Bible is first and foremost God's story, but he has graciously allowed us to be a part of what he is doing in the earth and how he is doing it. Uh, This is why the title for this series is Our Story Begins. Uh, The Bible is God's story, but it is also your story and my story because it reveals to us our shared origins, our shared purpose, and our shared destiny. So praise God for all of that. Uh, Today, we're going to break into Genesis chapter 2. Just kind of lining that up for you. Some have wondered why it seems like Genesis 2 is a different uh, creation account than Genesis chapter 1. Uh, As we will see as we work through this, it's not so much different as it is complementary. Genesis 1 gives us a view of God's creative power at the cosmic level, right? He's doing, you're seeing all of creation come together. Uh, Genesis 2 kind of zooms in and focuses on the sixth day and the creation of man. Uh, And I want to deal with something that comes up because I know you guys are noble Bereans. You've been paying attention thus far and you'll be paying attention as we read Today, and you'll notice in verse 5 of uh, Genesis 2, it seems like there's a contradiction. So I want to deal with that now so that we don't hit verse 5 and then uh, you're racking your brain trying to figure that out because I know you guys will notice. So uh, verse 5, Genesis 2, it says that no shrub of the field was yet in the earth and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. Uh, And so basically it's saying that before God made man, it seems like it might be saying there was no vegetation on the earth. Well, if you went back to Genesis 1, you would see that on day 3, God created vegetation. So this is one of the places where people see, oh man, is there a contradiction? Is Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 uh, saying different things about how God did all this? Um, what, what's going on there is there's, there's two different words for vegetation used. Uh, in Genesis 1, it's kind of a broad sense, trees and all of what's going on uh, as far as vegetative uh, diversity throughout the world. Uh, in, in Genesis 2, there's a very specific word for vegetation used, and you'll see some, some of your translations, NASB does this, it uh, uses, it says, of the field. And so that in, in Genesis 2, what it's talking about is plants had not yet, uh, God had not yet caused plants to come up that needed to be tended or farmed or cultivated by a human. And so uh, there is no contradiction, it's just talking about two different types of plants, and uh, that makes perfect sense as you read through uh, and see what it is God's doing, setting up there. So, uh, these verses that we're going to read today, first 15 verses of Genesis 2, they contain some powerful truth that is going to help us have a biblical understanding and hopefully a biblical attitude about something that the majority of people will spend 35% of their waking life doing. Okay, so let's read Genesis 2. Verses 1 through 15, we'll see what the Lord has for us, okay? Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, 
And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. And the Bdellium and the Onyx Stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Praise God for his word. So here's the question. What will the majority of us spend roughly one-third of our time awake on this earth doing? Any guesses? Working. Working is how we're going to spend a third of our time awake on the earth. And I know that sermons aren't supposed to make you depressed, but that is a fact. Uh, and this estimate is really only talking about like occupational work for pay, uh, and it doesn't factor in other labor, right, in the form of like household chores, volunteer work, uh, and other kinds of work. And so as we're going through talking tonight, I want you to make sure we're keeping in mind a holistic view uh, of not just vocational paid work, but all work, whether that be in the home, outside the home, wherever it happens. Uh, it kind of all needs to fall under this rubric and, and have us... Uh, find a way to see with a biblical lens uh, the way God sees these things. So uh, one-third or so, so it goes up from there in percentage, right? Um, if you're looking at paid work and then kind of the rest of all it takes for life to go. Uh, and if you, if you factor in the rest of that in addition to being paid, uh, I would say Pastor Jordan probably goes up to 50% because of this. This guy cuts his grass like Tiger Woods is coming over to use his yard to putt, right? Like, when he's cutting his grass, it's like, it, it, it's so slow, and he, he's just so careful, and, and there's like, oh, oh, I missed one, you know, and he's, he's doing this deal, right? Like, that's, that's how this brother cuts his grass, and so his, his time probably is, is even a bit higher than, than the average person. Uh, it's good, though. He's, he's methodical, and, and he can make fun of me uh, as well, easily, because on the other end of the spectrum, I basically run behind the mower because all I'm trying to do is knock enough grass down that my neighbors don't hate me. And uh, so praise God for that. We're, we're different. It's why we make a good team. So I'm thankful for that. Uh, but we, we spend a lot of our time, a lot of our time working. Our hope today is that we can have a biblical view of work, not just that we are gospel-centered in how we work or why we work, but that we see work itself the way God sees it. Now, whether we are aware of it or not, most of us don't see work itself as a good thing. Uh, for many of us, we see work through the lens of the curse in Genesis 3. It's there that God said to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. 
In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and also by the sweat of your face you will eat bread. I think a lot of times we, we see work through that lens, and we think that kind of broadly is talking about all work. The way we talk about death often reveals something about how we think about work as well. We often say things like rest in peace, very common thing to say. Uh, it's talking about uh, people after they pass. Uh, I've even been guilty of saying when somebody says, hey, you should slow down, I'll say, hey, I'll sleep when I'm dead, right? Uh, and some of you I know have probably also said that or at least thought it. Uh, I'm, giving you, I'm giving you evidence right now that maybe we don't see work the way God sees it. Much of the conversation around financial advice in our culture points uh, to our perception of work. Uh, everybody is told, and so many people scramble to save for retirement, and I just want to make sure I'm clear in saying that in and of itself, having wisdom with the uh, funds that God allows to come into our hands, so planning for the fact that at a certain age we'll probably be able to work with less vigor than we do when we're younger, that's really wise and we should do that. I'm not in any way against that. The, the, the point I'm making is, though, that many people work hard their whole life with the ultimate goal of not having to work anymore. That's, that's kind of the thing that motivates it, and that's where it can become problematic. Uh, and these are just a few examples of indicators that reveal common attitudes toward labor of various sorts. And, and let me make sure I say this. When we're talking about work, I already made a distinction between paid work and work in the home. But we're talking about no matter what we do, right? We, we live in a time where some people work with shovels, some people work with pencils, for some people it's a keyboard, uh, and for some people it's none of that. We're talking about everything that falls underneath uh, the, the kind of definition of, of work as we experience it today. So uh, these are a few examples that reveal common attitudes toward labor of various sorts, but the question we want to explore tonight is, how does God see work? That's what we want to know, because I'm trying in my life to see as many things as possible the way God sees it, because I know sometimes I don't see things the right way. Am I the only one that understands that about themselves, or do you know that sometimes you have a skewed perspective on certain things? Amen. Okay, I'm not alone. Thank you for that. How does God see work? So the first thing I want to point out to you is verses 2 and 3. Will you look at those again with me? Uh, I think I'm going to have to flip a page here. Praise the Lord. Okay, so it says, By the seventh day God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. Okay, so the first thing I want to point out to you is that if work was a bad thing or only the result of sin and the curse, God would not describe his creative acts in that way. God wouldn't say he worked, right? And so, first of all, right off the bat, we get to see if God's done it, if God's participated in it, then it has to be a good thing uh, and not just something that happened once sin entered the scene. Secondly, we look with me to verse 15. That was the last verse we read together. It says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it, and keep it. Okay, let's remember where we're at in the storyline. Uh, we're in Genesis 2. Uh, the, the serpent has not come along yet. He hasn't whispered in their ear. He's not convinced them uh, that God's holding out on them. And, and so sin has not entered the world yet. And yet, what do we see described here in verse 15, right? Adam had a job before sin entered the world. In the perfection of pre-sin Eden, Adam had a responsibility. He had work to do. When everything was perfect, mankind was given work to do. 
Now this should, these two points, should single-handedly undo the idea that work is a result of the curse. And we need to be careful about the way we think about that. What changed when sin entered the world was not that we started working, but that work became a struggle, and it became a toil. It became not a life-giving experience, but something that tends to suck life from us. Genesis 2 seems to be telling us that we were designed for work, right? There was no perversion yet at this point. There was no corruption of the perfect design that God had. And he gave to Adam a job to do. We were designed for work. God did not create us for perpetual leisure and then sin messed that up. God designed us to cultivate and have dominion and care for his creation as stewards of it. And does this not make sense experientially when you think about it? There, there are countless stories that I've read, but also people I know personally who worked their uh, whole life looking forward to retirement, and then finally they reached their goal, and finally, right, they were there. They would be able to relax and enjoy some leisure, but that lasted about six months, and then they felt like they were going nuts with boredom. Uh, I just, actually, we, we moved recently just down the street a bit, but far enough that we've got new neighbors, and I met, I've met three of them now, uh, and, and they're all retired, but I, I think Jean, over across the way, is the oldest of the three, and uh, she is a, you know, those of you that find little old ladies adorable, you would melt into a puddle of just tears of joy, because she's the cutest. So uh, I got to finally meet her the other day, and we were talking, and uh, I've seen her come and go a lot, but she said, yeah, I, I, I retired one time and went back to work, and I'm thrilled about it. So it's just uh, it's, it's a pretty common occurrence. And uh, some people don't do that. I, I know that. But also folks that retire, many people find hobbies or they'll do volunteer work uh, after they retire from their occupation. So even though they don't go back into a, a paid vocation, and, and one example I can think of that is uh, Natalie's grandmother, Grandma, whose name is also Jean, must have been a common name in that era. I think they're about the same age. Uh, Grandma Jean uh, has been retired for a long time, but one of the ways she fills her time uh, is twofold. One, she will go around and using coupons and an incredible gift of wisdom the Lord has given her, she will find yarn for ridiculously cheap amounts of money. Uh, like sh when she buys it, surely somebody's losing money. Uh, at the corporate level. So she goes around and buys yarn, and then she will go home, and uh, she will sit and knit hats for us to take out when we go out on Wednesdays and Fridays and serve the homeless in our community. Uh, she'll make these hats, and it's, it's a pretty beautiful thing to hand somebody a handmade hat and say, hey, my grandma made this. Uh, it just, there's a personal touch there that has, I've seen it like break people down several times. So there's, there's all kinds of different ways that people look to fill that time, uh, but the reality is all of that together kind of it lends some credence to this idea that I'm trying to convince you of, which I can't tell from your faces if you're convinced yet, but I'm, I'm working hard. i got a couple other things, so I hope I get you there, uh, that we were made for work. We were made to have something to do, a purpose. Uh, now, for the most part on the adverse, I, some people don't go back to work. Some people don't find something worthwhile to busy themselves. I've also seen people that stop working, and they just park that rumpkiss in an easy chair you know, they start watching Prices Right, and as the world turns, and whatever else is on during daytime TV, and those folks tend to really waste away. Their health tends to go down. I mean, this is, this is not just my opinion. This is observable um, over and over again, and so uh, there's something to that, guys. Uh, 
And, and, and the question is, why is that? What, what is there to this? Well, it's, it's because we were created for a purpose. And that purpose is not perpetual relaxation. Uh, even though maybe our culture tells us that it is and that's the ultimate goal. Or maybe even we wish that was the case. I know some of you are real bummed out right now. I've, I've told you that work is godly and good. You know, you were, you were thinking you were being spiritual by getting out of it. Um, but we, we weren't made for perpetual relaxation. But I need to stop right now and just address the fact that all of you workaholics out there who are thinking of all the lazy people that you're going to share this podcast with this week, uh, I want you to hold your horses, okay? Let's look at verse 3 together. You know I'm always going to jump to the other side and, uh, and help everybody. So it says, verse 3 uh, of what we read today, it says, Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. Now, it's, it's important, I think, for us to uh, look at this idea of rested in verse 3. Uh, the, the Hebrew word there can kind of have multiple meanings, and here uh, it, it means, you know, like how um, if you stop pedaling your bike, eventually it'll just come to a rest, come to a stop, it'll cease moving. That's really the, the, the best way to understand rest there. And why do I say that? Why do I split that hair? Well, we just want to make sure we're abundantly clear that, yes, uh, God speaking everything to an, into an existence is uh, a, a mind-numbing uh, feat, and it seems like a whole bunch of energy was exerted to do that. But we need to understand that God's choice to come to a rest here was, was just that. It was a choice. It was not out of necessity because his power and his sovereignty was not taxed in any way uh, through the creative act. And so, uh, but he did. He did rest intentionally. Uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with him setting an example for us. And so, uh, some of you exist in the other ditch, right? Where all of your identity is wrapped up in what you do or even just that you work really hard at doing it, whatever it is. And uh, this is the opposite ditch of what we're mainly discussing today, but it's an equally perverted view of work and its God-given purpose. Uh, according to Genesis 2 and the rest of the scriptures, we should see work as a good thing and a gift from God, and we should also see rest as a good thing and a gift from God. And we should seek for wisdom from the Holy Spirit on how to balance those two things faithfully. Let me hear you say amen, because no matter what ditch you're in today, you needed to hear that, right? Amen. Okay. Uh, much of what God is doing in his grand plan of redemption is restoring things to the way they were before we messed them up through sin and rebellion. So why would we think that eternity with God is going to be like a perpetual vacay, right, just tanning in the rays of God's glorious light if we have this picture painted in Genesis 2 of what perfection looks like. Why, why, do, why do we tend to associate eternity with God so much with rest and, and maybe rest by our definition? Well, a lot of that comes from Hebrews uh, chapter 4. So let me read you some verses in Hebrews, and uh, we're going to talk about what they mean and sometimes what we think they mean. Uh, this is Hebrews 4. I'm going to start in verse 1 and read in verse 3. Don't, don't turn there uh, unless you're real fast, okay? Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith 
in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. So what's he talking about here? When, when he says, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The comparison and contrast that's being used here is it's a reference to Israel entering the promised land. That's what God's talking about. That's who he swore would not enter his rest, was many of those who had not believed what he said, who had not trusted him in faith, were not allowed to enter, a whole generation. And this, of course, maybe it's not of course, but you, you need to know this, that all of what's happening with the Israelites and the promised land, the wandering, the whole thing, is a foreshadowing of all those who trust in Christ entering eternity with God. The Bible kind of tells an arc of a story, and then it, and then it loops back around and does it again. So we see a lot, and we can learn a lot from the interaction of God with the Israelites, uh, bringing them out of Egypt and the Exodus, their time in the wilderness, and then bringing them into the promised land. And so knowing that that's the case, knowing that here in Hebrews 4, the believer's ultimate rest is uh, tied to and compared to this rest that the Israelites experienced uh, in going into the promised land, here's the question we should ask. Did, did this rest in the promised land, did it mean once they got there, that they would all be able to just pop out a lawn chair and chillax and the Amalekites would bring them drinks with umbrellas in it, right? Is that what was described? Is that what that was going to look like, this promised land experience, uh, that it was just going to be perpetual vacation from that point on? No. This land, God promised, would be flowing with milk and honey and good things. Uh, it would have abundance like none of them had ever seen before, uh, but they would still have to cultivate build and take care of this inheritance that God was giving them. Uh, my point is here that many of us have bought the lie that perfection includes the lack of occupation. And this is not the picture that Genesis 2 paints about the perfect situation that Adam and Eve were in before sin. And it doesn't seem to be what it will look like when perfection is restored once the kingdom of God is fully manifest. And sin and death have been fully and finally vanquished from our presence. The rest that believers will enjoy in eternity is not a boredom-inducing lack of work, but a return to God's original design. For our occupation to be a source of joy and fulfillment as we accomplish the purpose that God has in store for us. Uh, I think these lyrics from one of my favorite songs captures it well. It says, in Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace. When fears are stilled, when strivings cease. My comforter, my all in all. Here in the love of Christ, I stand. When I said it was my favorite song, I saw somebody get nervous like I was going to sing I promise you that won't happen, all right? Um, praise the Lord for sound equipment. Um, so we, we will have eternal rest, but we're going to have eternal rest from the curse and all its effects, from doubt, from fear, from insecurities, and from every devastating effect sin has had upon the world that God made. And my friends, let me ask you this. What, what a glorious rest that will be when strivings cease, 
doesn't mean we won't have anything to do. It means no longer will we be battling against the effects of sin and death. The enemy will be gone. The real enemy will be gone, uh, which is not your job, in case that hasn't been made clear yet. Uh, now, hopefully, with what we've covered thus far, you can at least begin to see work the way the Bible describes it, not as a curse, but as a gift from God and a part of our purpose as his children. Uh, however, we can't talk about a solid theology of work without at least mentioning what the Bible teaches about how we work and why we work. So the Bible has a lot to say about it, uh, more than we're going to cover. I'm just going to give you uh, a few things here, okay? So the first is, when it comes to how we should work, we should do our work as unto the Lord. I'm going to read you Colossians 3, verses 23 and 24. It says, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord whom you serve. That is a verse that most of us have heard, but it can be hard to walk out. Basically, what we're being instructed to do here is to think as if Jesus is our boss, and that boss, however great or not great they are, is, is really less of a factor. We're supposed to imagine us working directly for the real master, that being Christ himself. And that can be hard to do, but I promise you that if you do that, it's not just a matter of... Uh, obeying for obedience sake, there's a real blessing that comes in it and it opens up opportunities. I know somebody personally that was sharing with me a story of their own current work situation and where they're at. Uh, there's a hierarchy of authority, which is true at most places. So uh, this gentleman has a boss above him and then there's bosses above that guy and whatever. And so the boss that's directly above him that uh, you know he kind of directly reports to, uh, this guy is seems like he's just really angry about life and does not like this guy that I know, my friend. And uh, so he just makes life hard for him. Loads him up with stuff that isn't fair and, and, and asks ridiculous things and acts like, you know, if, if that doesn't happen in this amount of time, then uh, the guy's not doing a good job or whatever. And there's a point where it finally came to a head where this guy was asking him to do things that, like, breaks the rules um, and saying basically his job is on the line if he didn't do this. And so uh, my friend was forced to go above him, go talk to HR, and go talk to the boss above him. And what happened there is telling. Because when he went and talked to these folks, they said, hey, listen, we've watched you work. We've seen the fact that you're faithful in all that you're doing. We don't ever have problems with the, the quality of the work that you're putting out. We know that there's an issue with this other gentleman from a personnel standpoint, and uh, we're working on dealing with that. But you don't have anything to worry about because your integrity and your character thus far speaks to this situation. And so we kind of, we know what's going on. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not telling you that so that you work as under the Lord in order to try to curry favor with your bosses. But what I'm saying is when you do that, people notice. When you do that, people see it. And it doesn't just have a benefit as far as the environment where you work. Uh, it can really speak to who it is you really serve. And, and, and it can cause curiosity in other people because Let's be honest, many workplace cultures, uh, and just many folks in general, we're just tempted to kind of slough off when nobody's looking, right? Uh, there's a temptation to do the least amount of work that, you know, kind of gets me up under the wire there, and um, God calls us to something more faithful than that, to remember that we're not working for earthly masters, but that Jesus ultimately is our king, 
and that our work should be done as unto him. And so that, that will open doors for us, but it will also speak volumes to those that are able to observe how it is we uh, conduct ourselves. So the first thing is that we should do our work as unto the Lord. That's Colossians 3. Uh, the second thing, we, uh, th- that's kind of how we should work. The second is why we work. And these are important questions to ask ourselves. Why do we work? Ephesians 4.28 uh, says this. It says, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let me just read that again. He who steals must steal no longer. Well, I don't steal. Yeah, but let's keep going. Rather, he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. The Bible here teaches in Ephesians that one of our motivations for work should be so that we have something with which to be generous. And oftentimes we don't think about generosity until the check comes and then maybe not even then, which is really sad. But here the Bible encourages us to think about even while we're working, while we're toiling in an imperfect situation, right? Uh, that one of the things that should motivate us as followers of Christ to continue on in that work is that there is going to be compensation, and that is going to bring into our life the ability to then meet the needs of others. Generosity should be one of the motivations for why we work. And I think all of us, if we were being honest, would say that at least some of the time, that isn't in the mix of motivations as we pry our eyes open in the morning, you know, and try to stumble out the door to get to wherever it is we're going uh, to, to work and to make money. And so uh, generosity as a base motivation for work so that we can uh, have something to give, so that we can propel gospel mission forward, was meeting needs of individuals or it's just pouring uh, financial the finances that God has given us into the work of the kingdom, uh, that should be a motivation for us. Um, and that's, that's hard to do. We should pray and ask the Lord to help us to remember that. That can be a difficult one. Uh, there's a contrast in the scriptures to working out of a motivation of generosity. And uh, there's probably more than one, but it, this one comes from Solomon in Ecclesiastes. Uh, this is in chapter 2. He says this, and, and you guys know Solomon was the richest guy around. Uh, some of his stories, he, he spent a bunch of time kind of collecting unto himself everything his heart desired, which he's going to say here, but uh, touted as potentially richest and wisest guy that ever walked the face of the earth. So this is his wisdom on it. He says, also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. That should really help us because I think most of the time we get caught in this trap of 
if I could just get to the next level in whatever it is, right, then that's where I would have joy, peace, that's where I would feel like I've accomplished something, whatever it is. And I'm not saying don't have goals. Uh, I'm not trying to, you know, make your favorite motivational speaker of no worth to you. I'm just saying we should just consider what the guy who got all the way to the top, you understand what he's saying here? I amassed gold and silver. I had all the things everybody wants. And then I took a look at it, and here's what my summary was. It was all vanity, and it was as if I was pursuing the wind, which to me is one of the most tragic uh, descriptions in all of the scriptures. Because for somebody to believe chasing the wind is going to accomplish something, and then, and then what he says is, not, not only is it tragic for someone to chase the wind, it's really tragic for them to catch it, and then to open their hands and realize... I have nothing. All of that effort and all of those motivations led me to nothing. And each and every one of us, to some degree and in some way, struggles from this malady. That we pursue things that are not actually for our good and will not actually lead to what we think they will. Which is joy, purpose, and freedom. There's only one source for these things, friends. And that's in Christ alone. Solomon knew what he was talking about. He knew more than you. Can you say that? Solomon knew more than me. Go ahead and say that. Let me hear you say it. He knew more than you, man. He got there. He got where a lot of you are trying to get. He said it's like chasing wind. That's really sad. So let's stop doing that. Amen. Working is unto the Lord, and working so we may be generous will both open up opportunities for us to destroy the false divide between occupation and mission. And, and let me just say this again before I lay this out for you. This goes for work we do for pay, right? Like occupational, vocational. This also goes for work in the home, okay? Because when I'm talking about the fact that work in the home is no less work than work done outside the home, we need to consider the fact that work done in the home, whether it's, you know, we're cooking, we're cleaning, we're just keeping the house together, all of that type of stuff, uh, that, first of all, can be an act of love to your family. There, there's a purpose there and something. It, it matters deeply, not any less and sometimes more than work done outside the home. Uh, and so God cares about this work as well, and it's included in what we're talking about. Uh, you may be thinking, well, I don't have a family at home. I live alone. Well, if that's the case, then your work at home, the chores that you, uh, you know, undertake in order to kind of keep everything together, that, that can simply be good stewardship right, of what God has given you, and that matters. Uh, and, and further than that, if, just because you live alone doesn't mean that you doing that work inside the home is, is not maybe preparation for hospitality, and I hope that it is. I hope if God's given you a place to lay your head, that from time to time at least you're opening that place up to bring others into, uh, to serve them and love them, build relationship with them. That's what Christian hospitality looks like, and it's something we should all be seeking to practice. And so, uh, God cares as much about work in the home as he does outside the home. So I just want to make sure you know I'm talking about that when I talk about the false divide between occupation and mission. If our motives are right, if we're working as unto the Lord and we're working so that we may be generous, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take down this false division that is sometimes put up between what we do for work and the mission of God because those things really... They go together. Why would I say that? Uh, well, I say that because Paul also knew more than we do about a lot of things, and, and this is the way he talked about it. Uh, Paul, when he's 
saying farewell to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. This is what he says. He says, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul didn't work and participate in gospel mission. He saw his work as a vital part of gospel mission. Did you catch that? He said, in everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. He said, not only did he work so that his needs could be provided for, and, and here's, how, here's how we know Paul doesn't see a division between the work he was doing uh, to provide for the, his needs, but also the needs of his companions, which is something that is, is amazing. Paul wasn't just doing whatever he was doing, making tents, whatever that really looked like. He wasn't just doing that so he could eat. He was doing that so that other people that had come to share the gospel could eat as well. Pretty powerful. But in addition to that, what it shows us is, what, what was Paul's whole point of being in Ephesus? Why was he there working at all? Well, he was there because he was on mission. He was there planting churches, preaching the gospel. Paul saw the work that he did with his hands at every bit as important and a part of how he accomplished the overall goal of obeying Jesus to go into the ancient world and plant churches and preach the gospel. It all went together. There was no division. And so what I want to try to undo for you is this idea that uh, maybe we, we, can, we can work and we can participate in ministry uh, and, and maybe try to balance those and whatever. We, we need to see that, especially think about this, dear friends, if for the majority of us, 35% of our life is going to be spent in some kind of occupational format, it, that's, a, that's a ton of time wasted if we're not on mission there. If we're not seeing that as a part of the way we're bringing glory to God, as if, it's, if that's not part of how it is we're pointing to the grace and the mercy that's available in Christ, the goodness of his gospel uh, and hope in Jesus. So uh, we need to see that those things go together. It's not that we're doing one so that we can maybe do the other. It, it's all wrapped up together. That's the way the scriptures see it. And I'm thankful that that's true. Uh, amen. It means we're all ministers and missionaries. We're all ambassadors of this gospel, right? It's not just people that have some certain special calling. Every single one of us, wherever you are, I don't care if you're a bricklayer, I don't care if you're a plumber, an accountant, a lawyer, doesn't matter. Teachers, especially teachers, wherever you are. We've got a ton of nurses here. Nurses, man. The situations that you're in, the environments you're in, that you go in there carrying the Spirit of God with you, being a source of peace in the midst of storms. All of you, retail, wow. That's getting really fun, isn't it? Should we switch here, buddy? Is that possible? Okay, I'm going to kill this one. All right. Okay, there we go. Praise the Lord. So you guys understand what I'm saying? There's not a difference between... Uh, ministry and work. There's not a division there. Paul saw those things as going together, uh, and I'm thankful that that's true for us. When you work as under the Lord, and you work with the goal of being generous, it is going to shock people around you, and it's going to give you opportunities to share why you live this way. This is further motivation. It is, is it fair to say, do you think, that it is not normative for people to be motivated in their work by A, 
the fact that Jesus is their ultimate master and that their work is supposed to be done unto him, and that B, they're there working so that uh, out of their increase they can be generous and they can be givers. That is not probably the highest percentage of what motivates people to do whatever work they do. And so when you live like that, uh, when that comes through in the way you work, when, that, when you have a sense of purpose when you're doing whatever it is you're doing, when you're not somebody that uh, is, is constantly just kind of in the doldrums about the fact that you're working at all, but uh, there's, there's a joy in it because you understand that there is a purpose, uh, that's going to open up opportunities. Just you being obedient in these things, you seeing work the way God sees it, the way Genesis 2 describes it, the way the rest of the Bible talks about it, uh, your perspective on that, it's going to kind of ooze out. It's going to bleed through, and people are going to be able to see that, and it's going to cause curiosity, and that's going to open opportunities for you to have conversations. People say, uh, why is it that you don't seem to hate your life when you're here on the job and everybody else does? Why is it that uh, even when everything is blown to pieces, you tend to have this kind of calm about you. And why does it seem like you genuinely want to be here? Uh, you know, and that, the, the, I'm just making these questions up that could come in thousands of different forms, but what it does is it opens up an opportunity for you to then say, hey, there's a reason for that. It's not because I'm a great person. It's because actually there, there was this point in life where I was, I was dead in my sins. I was lost and hopeless, but then I heard the good news of the gospel. Somebody told me, somebody shared with me that though every single person is hopeless, that I have hope now because Jesus came and lived the life that I should have but couldn't, and then he died the death that I deserve in my place for my sins. When I heard that good news, that I could be forgiven because of what Jesus has done, it changed my perspective about everything, including the way I do my job. And some of you are sitting there thinking, wow, I can't imagine myself ever, ever talking like that in an in a occupational uh, environment. And maybe for some of you, there's limitations about how far you can go. But I would, I would just challenge you that, listen, man, if somebody asks the question, uh, I think we got to take the opportunities. And whether or not we're willing to believe what the Bible teaches about work and then obey what the Bible teaches about work is going to really determine how much we're lined up for conversations like that, how much we are going to not only be able to live out the gospel through the way we work, but then speak about it. Uh, and uh, the, the example and the way that we live is, is one of the primary ways that we're going to have opportunities open up for us, and that's something I hope we're looking forward to, I hope we're seeking for, I hope as a people we are praying for those kinds of opportunities to come up, uh, not just at work, uh, but everywhere that we are. Uh, I hope that those of us that are working in the home, that our spouses and children or any, even somebody that comes over, I, I don't care if you live in an apartment by yourself, you're inviting people into your home and they see the care that you take to make sure the place is cleaned up and the care you put into the meal that you're sitting in front of them, the hospitality there, just the, the, all of what we do that would fall underneath that definition of work. I hope that in all of it, friends, you're seeing that there's purpose and that, that it matters not just in this physical world, but that it matters at a spiritual level. And uh, we should seek to do all of these things with excellence. And uh, we're not going to do that perfectly. Let's just say that. There's going to be rough days. There's going to be times we forget these principles. But I'm hopefully that even just setting the bar here, uh, this is something that we're praying about, something that we're thinking about, something that we're asking for God's grace to empower us to do better at. 
And uh, I'm thankful for the Word of God that says when we fall short of uh, working in this way or even believing and thinking about work the way the Lord does, uh, that there's grace available to us, that there's no condemnation. We're not supposed to beat ourselves up about it. We're supposed to repent, confess, trust in God's forgiveness, and move forward and keep going. Uh, Grace and mercy is new every morning, and boy, am I thankful for that. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Thankful for these things. May we be a people who, by God's grace, walk a faithful balance of work and rest. May we be a people who work knowing who our ultimate master is. And may we be a people who work that we may be generous and as a part of our gospel mission. For God's glory and our good. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you uh, in the name of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the first half of Genesis 2. Thank you for what it teaches us about something that's so vital for all of our lives. It's a huge deal how we work, why we work, if we work, what that all looks like. Lord, thank you that your Bible is not just so high and lofty that it doesn't deal with what we're going through right now, that the daily grind, it does. It speaks to all these things. Thank you for the instruction you've given us today through your word. Lord, please help us to, first of all, see work the way you see it. Lord, we don't want to just be able to have the right motives of why and, 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 the, and, and how we work, Lord. We want to see work the way you do. We want to think about things the way you do. So, Lord, help us to see work as a gift. Help us to see it as part of the purpose for which you created us. Lord, help us to have a, a, a good attitude about these things, a biblical attitude about working. Thank you, Lord, that uh, you don't discriminate when it comes to these things, that there's all different kinds of work and you don't put one above the other. Thank you, Lord, that there is, there is benefit not only to uh, your people, but also uh, to the world, the people around them, and, and everybody that, that is touched by these things, Lord, when we work as unto you. Lord, help us, please, to remember that, because there's, there's difficult situations. There are tempting times, Lord, for us to, just out of anger or frustration or whatever that motivation is, to, to not work as if you're the boss we're directly reporting to. There's so many ways where we're tempted to to sit that down. God, please remind us in the midst of the storm that we're working for you. God, please help us to be such a radically generous people in light of how generous you've been with us that our motivation for going to work would be that it would give us the ability to be generous. Not just maybe we think once we get our check about are we going to do something out of this, but God, May the fact that you're bringing seed into our hands to then sow into other people's lives and sow into gospel ministry, may that be part of what helps us get us to the job and have a good attitude as we go through it. Lord, I thank you that your gospel is true, and I thank you that as we obey what your word says in our thoughts and in our actions when it comes to work, Lord, I'm I'm trusting and believing. I'm asking you for opportunities as your people obey these things to share the truth of the gospel, because, Lord, none of us is going to do any of this in our own power. It's only going to be because of your grace and your mercy and the power of your Holy Spirit working in and through us. So, Lord, we acknowledge that. We need you. (laughs) You are the vine and we are the branches, and apart from you, we can do nothing, especially this. 
And uh, we just thank you for the promise of your help. Thank you that you didn't send us into this world to make disciples, to teach people all that you've commanded, uh, and then just walk away. You said, I'm also going to be with you to the end of the age. And so I just pray that my friends would remember that. When they go into those difficult situations, when it's a tough day at the job, may they remember, Lord, first and foremost, that you are there with them. Thank you for the peace that comes in your presence, Lord. When mamas are having a hard day, uh, at the house, and the kids are going nuts, and everything's wild, Lord, may they, may they press into you. May your peace just overwhelm them. When dads are feeling like the, the to-do list at the house, everything's broken, and they just can't get ahead, Lord, may they press into you and into your presence, and may they experience the peace that comes in trusting you. Lord, may we not be workaholics, and may we not be lazy sluggards. May we walk the beautiful gospel middle as it comes to these things. We need your help to do it. We trust you for that help. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.